Open up to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. If you need a Bible, there's some scattered around under the chairs in front of you, and you'll find 2 Samuel on page 321 in those Bibles. In a minute, I'll read. I happen to be reading from, it's called the New American Standard Translation, in case you're newer and wondering. There's a lot of good translations out there. This just happens to be the one that we've landed on and use. Um, but I'm happy to talk about any other options there if you have, have questions on that. In a moment, I'll start reading uh, here in 2 Samuel 5. A bit of an introduction, though. When John the Baptist started his ministry in the Gospels, he starts out with this call to repent because, he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. When Jesus, in Matthew 4, begins his ministry, he says the same words, repent, why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew's gospel, this theme of the kingdom comes up over and over again. It's like a repeated melodic line in a song that over and over again talks about Jesus as the king setting up a kingdom. It's Jesus who would teach his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How would that have sounded to his Jewish audience? These people he's speaking to, what would they have thought of when they heard kingdom? Well, surely they would have thought back to this greatest of their earthly kings that we're studying here, this King David. And they would have thought about God's establishing of his kingdom. He's got establishes his kingdom. And then in a couple chapters from where we're at this morning, he looks at that kingdom and he foreshadows the one who would come, Jesus who would come in this kingly line. But they would have thought about David's kingdom. What is the kingdom? When, when Jesus says the kingdom is at hand, when he says, pray, God, your kingdom come. It's a pretty loaded concept. I'm just going to give you a few, few things of kind of a framework to think about it, and then we'll, we'll jump into 2 Samuel. The kingdom, I think, as Jesus refers to it, as he predicts it, he's talking about God's people in God's place under God's rule. Isn't that, isn't that what a king has, a kingdom has? He has people to rule. Otherwise, he's just a landowner, right? So he has people. There's a place and there's rule that he has, authority. So he's talking about God's people and God's place under God's rule. He's talking about something that is both a present spiritual reality for us now, and there's an eventual literal fulfillment. There's an aspect of it that is, that is now in a spiritual sense, that if you have come to King Jesus, you are under his rule. There's still parts that we're awaiting. There's still prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled about his kingdom. And so I believe there will be a literal fulfillment yet to come. But consider some passages that talk about the way that you are kind of part of this kingdom now. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, it says, He redeemed us, or he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us where? To the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, if you stand here forgiven by Christ, having trusted in Christ, redeemed from your sins, says you've been, you've been transferred into his kingdom. So there's a, a sense of that that's now. And yet, there's some that is yet to come. In Luke 21, in a prophetic passage, 
Jesus describes these various events, and he says, so also when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. And I believe those are events that are still yet to come. And so, so he's looking ahead, even for us, looking ahead to this literal fulfillment of him ruling and reigning on earth that I think happens in the millennial kingdom. But there's a part of it that is, that is now, that is now. Well, what would his Jewish audience, again, have thought of when he was talking about the kingdom? I think their minds would have went back to what we're about to read about here. When God established David as king, that had been predicted, it had been anticipated, it had been waiting, and now this chapter really brings it to conclusion. I'll give you a heads up that this chapter is arranged not chronologically, but thematically, pulling in different events that actually happen, some of them out of order, sometimes separated by decades, but all to show the same event that, Jesus, or that David is king and God has established. It's like a collage. If you ever in school had to make a collage where you cut out different pictures and a theme and you pasted it together, and if you were like me, it was really messy and like there's glue everywhere, right? And you tape it there, but it's like, oh, it's a theme you're trying to do. That's kind of what this is. It's taking different events, pasting them together to show David has been established as God's king. We're going to read this a chunk at a time. We'll end up getting through the whole chapter, but we'll take it a piece at a time. 2 Samuel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel. You will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. Then they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. In Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Stop there for now. I think this first section, these first five verses, it's establishing the people of his kingdom. The people of his kingdom. The tribes of Israel from the north come down and they, they affirm him as king. But you might be wondering, what, wasn't he already king? It had been predicted. He'd been anointed. In fact, Saul has been dead for five chapters by now. Isn't he already king? Let me give you a brief summary of what's happened in the intervening chapters. Maybe you've been reading it on your own if you're going along with our reading plan, but maybe you're not, and so I want to kind of catch you up. Saul, who'd been this first king, died at the end of 1 Samuel, chapter 31. Saul is killed, just as had been predicted, and many of his sons are killed. In chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, that news gets to David. And the person thinks that David's going to be rejoicing in this, but David does not. He, he mourns he weeps over this news. It's telling for us. There's a remarkable lack of bitterness in his response. In chapter 2, David is ruling over these southern tribes, Judah in particular, but one of Saul's living sons starts to rule over the northern part of Israel. That son's name is Ishbosheth. Try to say that quickly, especially with a mouthful. Ishbosheth is serving as king in the north. 
And in chapter 3, there's conflict between these two. Actually, chapter 2, there's conflict between these two. In chapter 3, one of the leaders from that northern part named Abner defects down to David. There's some conflict with another of David's men. That man is killed. David mourns about that as well because he's trying to show that he is not trying to unite these kingdoms by force. He's trusting in the Lord to bring unity. And yet people keep trying to fight it and put it in place that way. Chapter 4, Ishbosheth is killed by assassins who bring the news to David, again thinking David's going to be happy, and once again David weeps. And now we get to chapter 5, and these northern tribes come down and they say, David, you're, you're our king. We recognize you as our king. And they do so for three reasons that you see here. There's three things they point to where they say, David, we're recognizing you as king. It's relationship, leadership, and promise. They point to the relationship they have with him. Look at verse Verse 1, again, it says, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. They say, David, you're one of us. You're one of our people. You're not a foreigner. You're among us. Which is critical because Deuteronomy 17, 15, we've looked at before because it predicts this coming kingship, says that the king must be one from among you. He must not be a foreigner and must be among you. There's a, a hint, maybe not more than that, but a hint of the incarnation of Christ who would come as one among us. A king not separate, not foreign, but among us. In Hebrews 2.17, talking about Jesus, it said, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to become truly man, He had to become one of us. He didn't shed his deity. He maintained his deity. He was fully God, and yet he took on full humanity as well. He was among us. He's not a stranger. When we come to him, we're not coming to a stranger, to a foreigner, to someone unknown or distant, but but one who became willingly like us. So the tribe say to David, David, you're, you're one of us. They point to his leadership. He said, even under Saul, you are the one who led us out into battle and brought us back. But they also notice they point to this promise. Put your eyes at verse 2. He said, The Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. This has been promised for years. And now they're finally saying, David, we believe this promise, and we are, we are acting on it. This is a promise that had weathered the unrelenting pursuit of Saul, where for Chapter after chapter, year after year, Saul had tried to put David to death, but he was unable to do so because this promise was yet fulfilled. It weathered David's own wandering in the Philistines, the land of the Philistines, lying about his identity in some ways. But the Lord brought him through that. It weathered the help of others who were trying to bring it about by force, but it it landed and it's happening now. It's a reminder that God's promises are sure Those promises trace even further back, though. Not just to God's promise to David, but we could even look back further. I'll skip over a couple passages here. There we go. Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham a full 800 years before the time of David. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And now David, down the line of that, God is making this great nation. That he said, still not fully fulfilled there, still more to come, but he's fulfilling this. It's a promise that 
It's fulfilling what God had said uh, through Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 12. When the people wondered, had they messed up too great? And the Lord says, or Samuel says, the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. He says, God will make you a people. He's holding on to this promise. They viewed a king as a part of this. 1 Samuel 2, verse 10. It's a promise that he will give strength to his king. They thought this was Saul, but Saul quickly failed. But now David is picking this up. In 1 Samuel 13, when Saul fails, it's pointing ahead to David. It says, The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. The Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you, he's telling to Saul. Now this promise is happening. How remarkable that David didn't try to force this, but he was patient and waiting. In fact, rebuked those who were trying to bring it about by, by, by violence. He said, the Lord will, will cause it to happen. And then that's exactly what's happening here. Uh, notice what they say about him in his leadership. It says, you will shepherd my people. Keep that term in mind, shepherd, because we'll come back to it in verse 11 and 12. So we see the people, and then we see some things about the place of his kingdom in verses 6 to 10. Let's pick up there in our reading. Starting in verse 6. It says, Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and they said to David, You shall not come in here, but the blind and lame will turn you away, thinking David cannot enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Therefore, they say, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the Milo inward. David became greater and greater, for the Lord God of hosts was with him. This is a great city of Jerusalem. That at this point is still in the hands, not of the Israelites, but of the Jebusites, which was a people in the land. And when Joshua and the others after him came into the land from Egypt, there was to drive out these other inhabitants, the Jebusites were not pushed out. And part of it was because this fortress that would become Jerusalem is so strong, they couldn't. And so David comes there and they're taunting him. They're saying, David, even a blind soldier could keep you out because they had so much confidence in this structure it describes here how David and his men snuck in through this water tunnel. And he, and he turns their taunts against him. This isn't like something where he is mocking the disabled. Don't take it that way. He's saying, oh yeah, let's see if your lame and blind can stop us. And, and they come in and they take over the city. Notice the conclusion though. Verse 10, David became greater and greater. Why? For the Lord God of hosts was with him. It's showing that God is establishing this. Now, even in this key location, this key place, God is establishing David. It really shows up in the next point. We'll call the, the point of his kingdom. The point of his kingdom. Let's, let's pick up again in verse 11. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a house for David. And David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of 
his people, Israel. The first passage shows the, the first verse there, verse 11, shows the international acclaim that David was getting. This is where you can see that it's not in chronological order. This actually probably happened, we know because of the date when this other guy ruled, probably 20 years later. So it jumps ahead, but it shows that the way that even foreign nations were recognizing David's rule and, and being used to build this house. But what I really want to draw your attention to is what it says in verse 12. David's sitting there, now in this home that had been built, beautiful house, a united kingdom that is ruling, prosperous place, and he looks around and what does he say? He says, the Lord has established this. The, the Lord has done this. The Lord has established him as king. He has exalted his kingdom. Why? For the sake of his people Israel. Not for his own sake, not for David's sake. It wasn't David that had done this. It was the Lord. Think about this in contrast to another king in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar. I've been reading through Daniel on my own, and I was struck by this contrast. Nebuchadnezzar, who's a Babylonian king, also is described as looking out over his uh, beautiful city. And he looks out, and what does he say? I have built this. By the strength of my own hands, by my own might, for my own glory, I have built this. And God struck him with insanity for a number of years until he brought him back out and he came to his senses and realized, no, it's the Lord that did this. Contrast that with David. David looks around and he says, the Lord has done this. Nebuchadnezzar looks around and says, I have done this. Nebuchadnezzar says, it's for my glory. David says, it is for the good of your people, God, that you have done this. This isn't the point of our passage, but I have to pause and just kind of ask the question. When you are succeeding in life, and you look around, and maybe you're in a position at work that you've longed for. Maybe you've got a new home, beautiful kids. Do you look around and say, look what I've done. Look, look what I have done. Look at, I, I went to school, and I worked hard, and I got this job, and I married a pretty wife, and now we've got great kids, and look what I have done. Or do you say, look what God's done. Look what God's done. I mean, David was was busy. He wasn't like he was just passively sitting around. He was obeying the Lord and seeking to take the city and lead the people. And yet, even with his own actions, he says, look what the Lord has done. And friends, that needs to be our mindset as well. And particularly for those that are in any kind of leadership. This is the leadership that Jesus would speak of later and teach about and model in himself. Just like David looked around and he said, the Lord has done this for the sake of his people, Israel. Not for my sake, but for the sake of his people. And later, Jesus would teach Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 42. He called his disciples to himself. And Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. They're put in leadership, and so they just get what they can from people. They lord it over them. But it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was the supreme example of this, not coming to be served, although he had every right to, but to serve. David is a small foreshadowing of that. God places in this position, and he says, Lord, look what you've done, and I'm going to shepherd your people, and I'm going to do this for your sake, not for my own glory. 
But unfortunately, there's a flaw. And that's what comes up next. The flaw in his kingdom. Start reading in verse 13. Meanwhile, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. After he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliida, and Eliphalet. There's a flaw. What was the flaw in his kingdom? He was. He was. The very beginning of verse 13 might catapult us back to something earlier that had been said. In 1 Samuel, when the people asked for a king, and Samuel tells the people, okay, you want a king? This is what he's going to do. Do you remember what he said? The key word over and over again? is that king will take. He will take from you. He'll take your sons. He'll take your daughters. He'll add them to his harem. He'll put them in his army. He'll take from them. Now David is established here in Jerusalem. What does he do? He takes. And not only does he take, he adds more wives to himself, specifically what he's taking, something that had been directly forbidden for these kings. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 17 again, a passage that looks ahead to the establishing of the kingdom. And he says, okay, when you ask for a king, be sure that they don't do this. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn, will turn away. So in this chapter that shows God establishing David's kingdom and the strength of his kingdom, and it's highlight after highlight, right in the middle, we see David breaking this. And of course, there will be rippling effects that come in the rest of 2 Samuel after this. This dampens our hero worship. It supports the reliability of the Bible. We come to the Bible and we see character after character that is flawed. Their doubts, their disobedience, their weakness, their inadequacy, over and over again. Great heroes like David, we see their weaknesses until we get to Jesus. And then we see that he's perfect. And we might wonder, well, is it just because the authors are writing him that way? They, they hid his flaws. They hid his weaknesses. Did they do that with anybody else? No. Character after character, even these heroes of the Bible are shown as lying and cheating and committing adultery and committing murder and over and over again. And then we get to David, or we get to Jesus, and, and there is no sin. It's like a, a diamond sparkling on a black background. And it just reminds us of the, the uniqueness of Jesus. It reminds us that this one, time after time, that the people thought was going to be the king that will really lead them. Maybe it's David, and then David falls. Maybe it's Solomon, and then he adds more and more wives. Maybe it's Josiah. Maybe it's others and others. They fall until they get to one, until they get to Jesus, who says, I always do the things that are pleasing to God. I always do. I always do the things that are pleasing to him, to my father. The reader may notice in here a reference to Solomon, a hint ahead to this great failing of David. We see the last section here, and we'll go through it just really briefly, the enemies of his kingdom. I'll read it and make a few comments, but we won't develop it in detail. Part of, again, showing how God is establishing this kingdom shows how he conquers the enemies there, starting in verse 17. 
When the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to seek out David. And when David heard of it, he went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines came and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. Then David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So David came up to Baal-perazim and defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me, like the breakthrough of waters. Therefore he named that place Baal-perazim. They abandoned their idols there, so David and his men carried them away. Now the Philistines came up once again and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. When David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up directly. Circle around behind them and come at them in front of the balsam trees. It shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then you shall act promptly, for then the Lord will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. Then David did so, just as the Lord had commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezir. I won't give much time here other than to say this probably happened chronologically before we just, what we just read. And there were two incidents to show that God is establishing this by defeating their long-term enemy, these Philistines. He does it through two different ways. Same enemy, same place, but God directs him differently and it shows that God is leading this victory. Okay, big idea of this passage. God establishes David's kingdom. That's where it fits in the storyline, I think. How do we apply that, though? What, what, what do we apply? And, and I want to I hit on some of these kingdom themes to, to think about kind of our application today. As I mentioned, we saw that the kingdom in the New Testament, as it's talked about, they would have thought back to how God established David's kingdom, but as Jesus taught on it and the uh, other apostles would later, it's this present spiritual reality with an eventual literal fulfillment God's people and God's place under God's rule. What does that mean for us? Well, it means that we can live and our church should function like an embassy of Jesus' coming kingdom. Like an embassy. Think about what an embassy is. An embassy is like an outpost in a foreign land of, a, of another country. And, and that's really what a church is now. It's God's people Jews, Gentiles, all nations, all languages, but united under Christ, for those who've trusted in Christ, they're transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's a spiritual reality in that sense. Awaiting a literal fulfillment, well, Jesus will set up his kingdom on earth. But the church is like an outpost of that, where we're saying, God, we want to we have your rule in our lives now, within the doors of this place. And think about an embassy overseas. Um, most countries around the world, we have a U.S. embassy, and often they're Big, beautiful buildings. This is the most recent embassies built. This is the one in London. It costs about a billion of your dollars, so thank you for, for your tax dollars for that. Um, but embassies like this around the world are little pockets of home, pockets of, of America. So uh, more than a decade ago, I was traveling in Moscow with a group to, to train pastors there, and something happened with our group. I can't remember, but somebody had a problem with their passport, and we had to go to the American embassy. And so we made our way there. We showed them our passports, and we went in, and it was like, ah, oh, home, right? Even though we were in a foreign nation, it was, like, it was like home here. There were American Marines guarding things or American flags. It was like our, our place. Uh, just a couple years ago, I was in 
uh, Baku and Azerbaijan, and it's a little bit more of a uh, dangerous place, not really dangerous, but I'm like a nervous traveler. I don't know if you guys are. I'm, I'm a nervous traveler overseas. And so when I was at my hotel room, I made sure to like, okay, where's the American embassy? And if I have to walk there, how will I get there? Because I wanted to know where could I be safe in this foreign place? Isn't that church? Isn't that what we ought to be literally inside these doors, but also just the church body Wherever we are, foreign nation, it should be home. And the values in here should not reflect the values outside wherever they are. They should be God's values. And, and so you think of uh, what an embassy does. I'm give you three things in a way that kind of mirrors the church. An embassy should reflect the values of the home country. An embassy should reflect the values of the home country. Think of an embassy like an American embassy in a totalitarian Middle East country that has very few rights for women. That's the nation around it. What would it be like inside the doors of the embassy? Our values reflected there. Equal rights for women, things like that that we would say are American values, even though outside it doesn't reflect that. And so in the same way, inside a church, it should reflect God's values, not cultural values that may or may not overlap. Sometimes they're pretty close. Sometimes they're pretty far off. But it should be, no, kingdom values in this little outpost, in this little embassy of the kingdom. Values of righteousness and mercy and grace and long-suffering and forgiveness and patience should mark a church as an embassy. Second, an embassy represents the home country in a foreign land. It represents the home country in a foreign land. Imagine, okay, you've seen this countless times in the news. Foreign country, people get upset at America, and they go and they protest at the embassy. And they, like, they throw rocks at the embassy. Why? Do they just not like the color of the paint? No. It's because that embassy reflects the thing they're mad at, uh, America in that case. In the same way, a church represents the Lord in some ways in the community in which we're planted it ought to represent Jesus to the community. And then third, an embassy assists citizens who are traveling abroad. An embassy assists citizens that are traveling abroad. If you're overseas and you run into trouble, where do you go? The embassy, if you can, because they're there to, to help you. Likewise, Christians over and over again are referred to as aliens and strangers in this world in which we live. Even, even in your home country, whether that's America or elsewhere, that's your home country, there's always a sense in which we're still aliens and strangers because we're awaiting a better country to come. And so, so the church as an outpost, as an embassy of this kingdom, ought to help one another, assist one another in this journey as aliens and strangers. And the good news is Jesus has promised to build the church. We talked a little bit earlier about God's faithfulness to his own promises. Think about that when we see Jesus in Matthew 16, 18 say, I will build my church. He goes on to say the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Jesus is promising, I will do this. He'll use you, he'll use me, but it's his work. He will build his church. There's a promise. Local congregations will come and go. Denominations will ebb and flow. But he will build his church because he has promised to do so. He's building it. It's his church. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's his. 
And it's his church, his assembly, his gathered, his called out ones, this embassy. He's promising to do it. And we just get to participate in it. Second application then of that, if that's what he's doing, if we're to pray your kingdom come, if we're to be involved as he's building his church, his, his fulfillment of this literal aspect of the kingdom, he will do that. He will come on his own time and he will set up literal reign and rule on earth. But this spiritual aspect of it, we get to be a part of as we invite others into his kingdom. As we say, come to this good and gracious king. We can do that as we invest, engage, explain, and invite. We invest in those who don't know Christ. We build relationships with them, not just as a tool, not just as a goal to win, but because we love them, because God loves them. We invest in them. We get to know them. We don't live in little isolated bubbles. We get to know them. We invest in them. We engage with them on big life questions and issues. We talk about significant things. We look for ways to pivot to the gospel Look to explain the gospel in clear terms. Clarify it in our own minds so we know what it is to come to Christ. What are we asking them to say yes to? Then we invite them. Invite them. It could be inviting them to church, although most often somebody might be hesitant to come sit next to you here. But they might sit across the table from you and open a Bible, read along with you, talk to you. You can invite them to take some other steps that way because God is building his church. And this is a way that we can be a part of it. Let's pray.